Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14 through 21, and then verse 28 through 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In verse 28, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. We are in the fourth week of our Advent series that we've been calling home. And the reason that we've called this series home is because we believe, as John 14 says, uh, Jesus says this, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. We believe that the reason that Jesus Christ came uh, incarnate as a child to the world was to bring us home to the Father. Now, that, we could tease that out. It means a lot of things. But we think that this idea of home comes from the Bible. And you and I know the feeling of home very readily because the, the, the feel, you can buy a house, but you can't buy a home. We were made to live in relationship with other people. And we've all experienced brokenness in our relationships. We've all experienced joy in our relationships. And this idea of home uh, is why Jesus came, to bring us home to the Father. Uh, Megan and I have been enjoying uh, a series of historical, uh, historical documentary series on Netflix called The Crown. Uh, some of you have seen it, maybe some of you have not, but it's about uh, Queen Elizabeth's uh, II's reign uh, in England, and it's about kind of the story of that, and it's pretty, uh, uh, it's pretty accurate from what I hear. I'm not, uh, I'm not, I'm not schooled enough to know uh, real well, but it seems like it's very accurate compared to what other people say. And one of the things that really stuck out to me about that series uh, is something that the Queen Mother says to Queen Elizabeth just as she's being uh, anointed as queen. And she says this uh, to her daughter. She says, the crown must always win. The crown must always win. Now, what did she mean by that? Well, I think she meant that the, the individual person cannot supersede the crown. The crown is the most important thing about your life, and pushing for the kingdom is the most important thing. I would argue that that's the entire reason that King Jesus came. And it's the reason that Jesus came the way that He did come. Humbly. He didn't come as this conquering king initially. And he did conquer, but he conquered in a different way than we thought that he would. 
By becoming a child, by bearing the sins of the world on the cross like we talked about last week. And reigning as King. And so we're going to talk about this idea of the crown today. And what that means uh, for us as God's people. When Jesus was born, He came into the mess. He was born, as Galatians 4 says, under the law to redeem those who are under the law. He came to save us from the slavery that we had gotten ourselves into. And He came to bear a crown that His Father had given to Him. And we have a picture uh, that we've been using throughout this entire series. And it's the picture of a fully set table ready for a family to gather around it. And the reason this picture is up here every single week is because this is what our Heavenly Father is doing for us in eternity. As John 14 says, He has prepared a place for us. He's preparing a place for us. And it will be, the, the kingdom of God will be inaugurated, it'll be, I'm sorry, consummated with the marriage supper of the Lamb. So there'll be a meal, marriage supper of the Lamb, where all of God's children will gather together and feast together. And we'll feast on the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. And while we were yet dead in our sin, Christ came to save us. And so, the, the, the image of this table is so important to us because we see at the table is where we're meant to be and it's where our hearts long to be with our Heavenly Father. So the big idea of where we're going today from Luke chapter 4 is this. Jesus came to build a different kind of kingdom. Jesus came to build a different kind of kingdom. I've noticed in my life that, that everyone is building a kingdom. Now some of you may say, I'm, I'm not really building a kingdom, I'm just trying to get by. Everyone is building a kingdom. Whether you know it or not, you're building someone's kingdom. It's yours, it's God's, it's someone else's. So the question is, what does it look like for us as Christians to build the kingdom of God? What does it look like? And what I've discovered is that we cannot build the kingdom of God unless we know the King. We can't build God's kingdom unless we know the King's heart. Because we don't know the King's intention. We don't know the King's motives. We don't know what He desires. Because Jesus is building a different kind of kingdom. It will do us well this morning to see what the King values. What His heart is after. What our heart may be filled with. What our hearts may come alive to. So, I want to give you a quick disclaimer before we get into this though. In order for this sermon to really have the fullest effect that it can, um, I'm going to ask you uh, to, to, to set aside any preconceived notions that you might have about your own walk with Christ and your own spiritual maturity. Because if we come into this, listening to this sermon, thinking that we really know what it means to build the kingdom of God, we might miss what God has for us this morning. So let's just set that aside in humility and ask God to really speak to us today. So here's our task today. How do we ensure that we are in fact building the kingdom of God? That we are advancing Jesus' mission and not our own? I think, it, I think it comes in kind of three points here. So here's my hope. Uh, we have to know the King. We have to see the kingdom. And we have to build His kingdom. So those are our three points in where we're going today. So let's look at the first one. We have to know the King. 
Let's open up to Luke chapter 4. If you've got a Bible, if not, it will be uh, on the screen for you. Luke chapter 4. It's an interesting Advent text for us, but I think it is probably the most telling uh, for us this morning as we look at the kingship of Jesus. Because in this text, we see how people respond to the idea of Jesus as Messiah King. We're seeing their response because what He declares to them in Luke chapter 4 is the kingdom that He intends to see built through His rule and His reign. But Luke chapter 4 our text today ends up with God's people, the Jewish people, the Israelites, seeking to throw Jesus over the brow of a hill. So there's some kind of disconnect with the kingdom that Jesus wants to build and the hearts of those that He's called to serve in the synagogue that day. So let's look at Luke chapter 4. Starting in verse 14 here, we read this a second ago. I'm going to bring it back up here. When he came into Nazareth, where he had been brought up and was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. I want to tell you a little bit about the synagogue. What was a synagogue service like? Well, they met on Saturday, the Jewish Sabbath. And here's how the service would typically look like. They, have a, they had a liturgy, similar to uh, many of our churches have a liturgy, and it would look like this. They would, they would recite the Shema, which is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 and following. And it's the, the, the portion of the Scripture that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord our God is one. And it goes on to, to, to talk about the true essence and heart of God for His people. They would recite that because they needed to be reminded every single week who God was and what His kingdom was like and what they were to do about that. Then they would go and there would be uh, some prayers and there would, there would be a reading from the law. The law is the first five books of the Old Testament, also called the Torah. And then there would be a reading from the prophets. And then after that, there would be instruction uh, on those passages. And the way it would work in the synagogue is that as long as there were ten men present, uh, any Jewish male could stand up and give insight into those texts. So Jesus evidently stands and gives insight into Isaiah chapter 61 that day. Now, Now think about this. Nazareth. Jesus' hometown. This is where He was brought up. He used to roam these streets as a boy. Nazareth. His hometown. Do you think He probably saw familiar faces in the synagogue that day when He stood up? Probably did, didn't He? Probably saw some kids He used to play with. Probably some carpenter buddies. Saw some family friends as He stood up that day. And He told them something remarkable. What did He tell them? He said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, what you have to know about this is Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61 and Isaiah 58. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. So so what does that mean? Jesus is saying that He has fulfilled the prophecy uh, of the Messiah. And and so when when was the Spirit of the Lord given to Jesus? When was the coronation of this King? Well, the coronation of this King was at His baptism back in Luke chapter 3. Jesus was baptized, and at His baptism, the Spirit descends on Him. A dove comes down, and there's this booming voice from heaven. Do you remember what the voice said? This is My Son, in whom I'm well pleased. That's what the Father said to Jesus and all who 
could hear that day. That's the coronation of King Jesus. That's when Jesus began to wear His crown when He was anointed with the Spirit and He began to reign as King. That's when His ministry began. So the Spirit is upon me. King Jesus has the the seal of His crown. He's been anointed. And then He goes on to tell them, okay, now that My kingdom is inaugurated, He begins to tell them, fulfilling prophecy, prophesying what His kingdom is going to look like on, on how this is going to play out. And He says this, because He has anointed Me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So what's it mean that He's been anointed to proclaim good news to the poor? Is this just a poverty Gospel where Jesus has been called to those who are poor? Or is there something more here? I would argue there's something more here than just socioeconomics. There's more than meets the end because the, the more than meets the eye because the poor in the scriptures um, is not just a physical poverty; it's also a spiritual poverty. Jesus is saying, "I've come to those that are spiritually broken because spiritually broken people who are in desperate need are the only ones that will receive my word because they know that they need me." They know that they need a king like me. This is what Jesus is saying. His aim is specifically at those that know that they need Him. Brennan Manning in his book, The Ragamuffin Gospel, says this about those that are in spiritual poverty. The deeper we grow in the Spirit of Jesus Christ, the poorer we become. Doesn't make sense, does it? The deeper we grow, the poorer we become. The needier we become is what he's saying. The more we realize that everything in life is a gift, the tenor of our lives becomes one of humble and joyful thanksgiving. Awareness of our poverty and aptitude causes us to rejoice in the gift of being called out of darkness into wondrous light and being translated into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. He's quoting Colossians 1 there. So he's saying poverty is something, spiritual poverty is something that we should desire. I mean, think about the Beatitudes blessed are the poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Think about that. Jesus seems to be beating that drum over and over and over again. So those who do, do not consider themselves in need of this type of a humble Messiah will not see the King as the King. They will not see Him as the prophet that has come. They will not see Him as the Messiah because they want a different kind of King. He goes on to talk about proclaiming liberty to the captives. So he's talking about freedom for those who have been held captive. Is he talking physically about prisoners in prison? But probably. You know what's true about people that are incarcerated? They know their need. They've been found out. They know their need. It's the same for those who are spiritually held captive. They know that they need a Redeemer. They know that they need a Savior. 
What about recovery of the sight to the blind? I think about this instance where Jesus meets this this blind man in John chapter 9. And if you recall the story, it's interesting because in John chapter 9, there's this argument because Jesus you know, tells this guy to put mud on his eyes and then he wipes it off and then he can see. It's this kind of crazy debacle. And then the, the, you know, the Jews are frustrated and they're like, hey, you know, who, who, you know, who sinned, this man or his parents? And you know what the guy, you know what the guy says? He says, hey, there's only one thing that I know here. Okay, like, I, I don't know whose sin we're dealing with here. There's only one thing I know. I was blind, and now I can see. There's only one thing I know. And I would argue that for us, that's the only thing we need to know as well, is our poverty, our depth of need. So Jesus came to those who have a need. He came to those who are broken, spiritually impoverished and he came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor so what's that mean what's well, a it's an allusion to the year of Jubilee which is the 50th uh, celebration that happened every 50 years in the Jewish uh, culture and in the law where debts would be forgiven to those who lived in the lands of their original tribes and land would be restored and all this kind of stuff it was this beautiful picture of forgiveness and justice and mercy he's saying that, that this is synonymous with the fact that He came to proclaim the good news of the Kingdom of God. He came to establish the Kingdom of God. came to make it known. And His life would be an example of what the Kingdom of God looks like. So, that's Luke chapter 4. Now, it goes on in verse 28-30. through 30. Now, I skipped a few verses there. And the reason why I skipped those is there's this kind of huge conversation about, about prophets Elijah and Elisha who heal Gentile people because of the unbelief of the Jews. And it's not really pertinent to where we're going today, but they are so frustrated. The Jewish people are so frustrated with Jesus because He's coming to tell them about a kingdom that they don't think that they need. And what do they do? Well, they want to throw Him off a hill. I went to Israel about a year and a half ago. Actually, a little over a year ago. And I stood on the brow of that hill that Jesus was allegedly you know, thrown off of, or they try to throw him off of. And I remember sitting there, it was the, it was the most uh, impactful moment that I had on the entire trip. Because I stood on the brow of this hill, and you could see, um, you could see out in the distance this little mountain, and our guide told us, hey, that's, that's Mount Tabor over there. Do you know what Mount Tabor is? And we were like, ah, oh, we've read it in the Bible before. And he says, Mount Tabor is where they think that the transfiguration happened. So the transfiguration was when Jesus took his closest three disciples up on the mountain, and 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 Moses uh, and Elijah. They all meet up there, and then this booming voice comes down from heaven, and it says the same thing uh, that it said at Jesus's coronation at his baptism. This is my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. So I have to, I have to think maybe in Jesus's mind, maybe he was he was kind of strung up there, getting ready to be thrown off the hill, and he sees Mount Tabor. And he's reminded maybe of this promise that God's going to make to him again. That that He is the Son of God and He is coming to establish His kingdom. There's this moment that he's having with his Father. It's interesting what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says this, Not everyone who says to Me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of My Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to Me, Lord, Lord, 
Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, and this is key right here, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what were these people doing? They were doing good works, miraculous works in Jesus' name. They were building a kingdom in Jesus' name, but they were building the wrong kingdom because why? They didn't know Him. Friends, if we don't know Jesus, how are we going to build this kingdom? How are we going to advance His kingdom? How are we going to know the King's heart if we don't know Him? I would argue that knowing Him is the primary work of the Christian. It takes work, it takes time, it takes labor to know Jesus. And many of us want to just get to doing for Jesus. And when we get to doing for Jesus without knowing Him, we end up building the wrong kingdom. And this is what he's talking about here in Matthew 7. I'm a, I'm a fixer at heart because I'm a man, you know? You know what I'm talking about, guys? I mean, we like to fix. You're nodding your head. You like to fix stuff. You know, when stuff's broken, I like to fix it. When stuff isn't broken, I like to break it so I can't fix it. I like to fix things. And I was recently having a conversation with my lovely bride just about some stuff going on in life. And uh, I began to start offering solutions to her. Some of you, yeah, I'm hearing, yeah, hearing a grumble over here. You know where this is going. I began to offer solutions because I'm, I like to think that I've got some good ideas, like most of us men. And um, I began to offer solutions, and she says, Ryan, you haven't even heard me. You haven't even listened to me. You don't, what she was saying is, you don't even know me. You don't even know this situation. How can you offer any advice? Because you haven't sat in it with me. And we're quick to do that time and time again. The first thing I want you to hear today is this, is we've got to know the King. We've got to spend time with the King to know Him, to see His kingdom. Secondly, we have to see His kingdom. As we've looked at in Luke 4, we see His kingdom is different than what the Jewish people expected. He came for outcast people, for people that didn't have it all together, to people that were marginalized, for people that, that, uh, that didn't have anything like, special about them. He came for those people is what He was saying. And it was offensive to the Jewish people because they thought that they deserved His blessing and His presence. But the problem is they didn't value the same things that He valued. Luke 17, 20-21 says this about the kingdom. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That's key. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Let's pause on that for a second. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, if you're anything like me, I like to see the kingdom of God in big, explosive ways. You know, I like to see like the dead being raised, people being healed, big, explosive ways. And does the Spirit do that? Does the kingdom come in that way? Absolutely it does. But you know how the kingdom comes most of the time? It comes in these slow, subtle ways that are in the mundane activities of your life. On your commute to work, trying to feed dinner to your four children when they're throwing food all over the place. That's how the kingdom comes. It comes in those moments. God meets us in those places. I recently heard about a Navy SEAL captain who was on a mission 
with a sniper. Now, this captain wasn't trained like the sniper was. The sniper was the, the trained guy. The captain was with him there. And, uh, and they were scanning the horizon looking for evidence of the enemy to take them out. And the captain said to the sniper, hey man, I can't see anything. You know, there's supposed to be all this activity on the horizon. I can't see anything. I'm looking everywhere with my binoculars. I can't see anything. And the sniper said something remarkable to him. He said this, to see anything, you have to stare at one, at one point and focus on it with your binoculars. You have to take a manageable bite-sized piece of the horizon and focus on it. And when you focus on that, the movement will become readily apparent to you around it. So let's think about that for a second. That's a, kind of a big concept. What he's saying, if we translate that to us, is that if we want to see the movement of the kingdom of God, we got to zone in, we got to slow down, and we got to focus on a particular relationship, a particular situation that we've been praying about. We got to focus on it, and we got to look for the kingdom's movement as we focus on it. So, what is it in your life right now that you've been praying? that God would move in a certain way in a certain situation. You've been praying for the kingdom to come, His will to be done as it is in heaven in that certain situation. To extract that, what would it look like for you to just, to just focus on that and begin to see God's movement in all the slow and subtle ways? Because He's moving all around us. He's building His kingdom. He's just building it at a different pace and in a different way than we would do it because He's God. And we have to be okay with that. But he's building his kingdom, church. No doubt about it. He's wearing his crown. He's ruling as a king. So how do we see that evidence? I, I practiced that this week. And I just want to share a few things that I observed this week. It's when a missional community rallies around someone going through a hard time financially and tangibly shows the love of Jesus to them. Saw that the kingdom was coming in my living room. It was coming. It's when a kid in your mentor group is broken and crying at the thought of losing his family. And I got a meeting to get to, and I'm not trying to pat myself on the back, but I said, you know what? I think that meeting can wait. I think I need to sit right here in the library and sit with this boy. He's scared to death. It's when you stop and you let God interrupt your plans. It's when your love for your spouse causes you to inconvenience yourself and die a little bit more. It's when you take time to actually get to know the people around you instead of just pushing the next thing on the calendar to the front. It's when you begin to see yourself liberated from the captivity of loneliness through exposing your own brokenness and need in a community of Christ followers who speak the Gospel to your heart. See, we're so afraid of doing that. We're so afraid of being found out, but it's the only way that we get freedom when we make ourselves open and available to the family of God that He's put around us. Neil Earl, pastor in California, says this, The Bible is all about the Kingdom of God. Yet the King of this new order kept talking about the Kingdom as a mystery. Even mysteries. The mysteries of the Kingdom Matthew 13.11 Instead of an Alexander the Great, a king on a white horse, listen to this, God offered a naked carpenter nailed to a tree, a kingdom that Galilean housewives could understand. 
one working invisibly but relentlessly like yeast in a batch of dough. That's the kingdom that God is building. It's the upside-down kingdom that He's inaugurated and that is coming to fruition in our midst. And my question is, do you see it? Do you have the eyes to see the kingdom that He's building all around us? Do you see your children's heart being shaped by the Gospel even though their behavior is not yet caught up to it? Can you see the kingdom forming in front of your eyes? This past week, I was in my discipleship group with the, the six guys that, uh, that I'm sharing life with this year. And, uh, and one of the guys said something to the effect of, um, you know, he's like, because we're, we're spending time in prayer, and he's like, you know, I, I don't know what I would change in life right now. Uh, it's, it's, um, there's some good things, and there's some things that aren't so good. But here's what I know. Uh, these things are keeping me near to God. The good, the good and the bad. They're keeping me near to God, and because of that, I wouldn't change anything. So tell, ask God, plead with God to keep that coming. That nearness to God. Whatever it takes to keep me near to God. That's what he said. And I thought, wow. What a prayer. What a prayer that, that we would seek nearness to God above all else. Lastly, so we've got to know the King to see the kingdom, to build the right kingdom, to build His kingdom. I'm struck by the fact that those who are in Christ are called ambassadors of His kingdom. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making His appeal through us. So, so think about this. Those of you who have traveled uh, abroad, um, you, you, you understand the idea of an embassy. An embassy is kind of a safe haven in a foreign land. What if we began to see our lives as an embassy for the watching world to come and taste and see that the Lord is good? What if we fostered that kind of community that people could come and see Jesus through the way that we live our lives? What if we were embassies to the, to the watching world around us who are not yet Christ followers? What if we were those kind of ambassadors? What would our lives need to look like? Maybe we would seek God instead of a way out of the pain. That people would see our pain and see how we deal, how God deals with us in the pain and how we sit in it and seek to find Him instead of a quick fix. Maybe, uh, maybe we find our security in Him uh, instead of in all the metrics that we could put on things and calculate. I cannot represent the King to the world around me unless I know the King's heart and the King's kingdom. I can't do it. And I think a lot of us spend a lot of our time trying to do that. Trying to represent and be ambassadors of a King that we don't really know that well. What's it look like to know the King? I want to, I want to close with this example from 2 Samuel chapter 9. And I think King David... Um, was a flawed man. I think he was as big a sinner as ever lived on the face of the earth, just like me. But King David had the Spirit of the living God living inside of him. No doubt in my mind. And I think we see an example of how King... He, King David gives us a foretaste of what King Jesus is like, okay? And I want to share an example with you from that. I'm going to put a big name on the screen right now. Um, it's the name of our fifth-born child, Mephibosheth. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. That's impossible. 
Mephibosheth. That is a big name. Ain't American, is it? Mephibosheth, what a name. Mephibosheth is this guy that is uh, he's King Saul's grandson. And David, after David has assumed, he's, he's, the, he's the heir of the kingdom now. He's, he's the king. Um, David goes to a servant named Ziba. 2 Samuel chapter 9. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to kind of story tell it to you. He says, Ziba, is there anyone that I can show kindness to in the kingdom for Jonathan, my best friend, Saul's son, can I, for his sake? Is there anyone I can show kindness to? And I, and I picture that it happens like this, that Ziba kind of says something like this, well, there's this one guy, okay? Like, I hesitate to tell you about this guy because I don't think he's the kind of guy you're looking for. His name's Mephibosheth. And he's, he's, he's crippled. Like, he, like he's, not, he's not the kind of strength that we're looking for in the king's presence, if you know what I'm saying. There's this Mephibosheth character. And David says, go send for him. Bring him to the king. So Ziba brings Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth gets in front of David. And he says, here I am, your servant. And then he asks something to the effect of this kind of question. Why do you want a dead dog like me in front of you? Why do you want me? In other words, what good am I to a king? What good am I to a king? Look at me, I'm broken. I can't go to war. I can't fight. I can't make a good living. I'm crippled. i got nothing to offer. You know what David says to him? He says, um, so, Mephibosheth, I want you to come into my kingdom and I want you to live at the palace with me. And the Scriptures say this, so Mephibosheth ate at, the king's, ate at the table like one of the king's sons. This crippled man who had nothing to offer is invited to the table of the king. 2 Samuel 9.13 says this, so Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, the holy city. He lived there. For he ate, it, he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. Now think about the paradox of that statement, of that verse. He ate at the king's table always. He was always at the king's table in the king's presence. And he was crippled in both of his feet. Isn't that the story of the Gospel for us, church? It is. We're crippled in both of our feet, yet we're sitting at the king's table because it's not dependent upon us to get ourselves to the king's table. Jesus carries us there. That's the kind of king that he is. This tells us what Jesus is like. He's, he's interested in the uninteresting. He's looking at the overlooked. He's, he's about the people who have nothing to offer him except their desire for more of him in their life. Jesus came to inaugurate a kind of upside-down kingdom. So what's it look like for us to allow Jesus, think about this, to reign supremely in and through us? What's it look like for us to build Jesus' kingdom? To let His kingdom come through us. The real kingdom. The hidden kingdom. The mysterious kingdom that we can't see at all, yet it's in our midst. What's it look like for you today? I mean, think about 
the kingdom. The, I mean, the kingdom's not going to come on headlines, on the headlines of Fox News or CNN like we might expect it to. We're not going to get a notification on our iPhone that the, the kingdom's here. It's not going to happen like that. It's coming incrementally over time. It comes to broken, downcast sinners. All those people that Jesus deeply loves, yet society has written off. Think about this. Think about the shepherd boy out in the field, the smallest of at least eight brothers. The one that Jesse said to Samuel, I don't I really don't think you want that king. The one out in the field, you really want? You think he's the, the heir apparent? David? You really think so? The kingdom coming in our midst. To the grace-turned-prostitute in Jericho, Rahab herself, the kingdom coming. To the Gentile widow, Ruth, all of these people in the bloodline of Jesus. To the lame man at the pool of Siloam that Jesus happened to notice. To the blind man who cried out for mercy. To the adulterous woman who interrupted an upscale fine dining dinner at a nice establishment to anoint Jesus with oil, with perfume, and washed it with her feet. The kingdom coming to the paralyzed man whose friends took off the roof of a house to get him to Jesus in Mark 2. To the demon-possessed man in the country of the Gerasenes that when Jesus left him, he was in his right mind. To the criminal who was justly being executed on the cross next to Jesus. To the little children that the disciples said need to get out of his midst. Jesus said, come to me. The kingdom is coming. The kingdom is coming. 